So once again, Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through, 12 through 13 says this, Therefore, my dear brothers, just as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is, at work, who is working in you, both to will and to work according to his good purpose. Now notice verse 13 there, and I've highlighted it in the notes, and they may, it's even highlighted up here, great. Uh, it says, it is God who is at work. And notice that word for, for. So think about all that Paul has said before. He begins with, have the same mind in you that was in Christ Jesus. And then he goes into that beautiful Christological passage where he talks about basically the beginning of life's Christ before he was on earth to his time on earth, to his death and to his resurrection in just a matter of a few verses. It's like a, like a very snippet of a, of a gospel right there in those few verses. But, but the guiding theme there is if, if we're going to be a community that is successful and a community that overcomes the conflicts that will always be present when humans seek to gather together in community, uh, then, then we have to take seriously the fact that that can only be successful when that group of people are all equally committed to cultivating the mind of Christ. And if we're not going to model the humility of Christ, community will always be impossible. And we can certainly see that. We're reminded that every day. This is one of the most divided times of life in contemporary America that I've ever seen in my lifetime. And, and talking to others that even are a little older than me would say the same. And so in the context of a divided nation, can there be a unified spiritual community? Possibly, but it's not guaranteed. It can only happen if all of us are equally committed, not just to one another, but to walking out what it looks like to cultivate the mind of Christ in the context of community. And so, so this is the guiding theme that's been, been in Paul's mind, and it, and it crescendos in this command in verse 12 to work out your salvation. But we can only work out our salvation, we can only cultivate the mind of Christ if we believe and trust and act upon the fact that it is God who is at work within us. That is the source of our hope, the source of our strength, and if we'll yield to it, it's the guarantee of our success. Essentially, Paul in 13, if we simplify it, is simply say, 12 and 13, Work out your salvation, for it is God who is working in you. Work out your salvation, for it is God who is working in you. And if you isolate any of those ideas, you get something less than the fruit we're expected to enjoy. If my emphasis is only on work out my salvation, then I become weary with that legalistic bondage, or I'm successful at navigating it in my small pond, and I get filled up with the pride that cuts me off from the necessary humility that it takes to actually walk leaning on the Holy Spirit. Amen. And at the same time, if I just theologize, don't worry about it, it's God that's at work. Well, what does that even mean? You know, what does it mean to just let go and let God? Or what does it mean that all oh, the battle belongs to the Lord? All of these phrases that we use, and I know that we mean well when we say them, but if we communicate Therefore, there's not really hard choices that you have to make in the power of the Spirit, then we're doing a disservice to people because we can't just ignore the consequences of our choices with the phrase, I'm just going to let go and let God. God is good all the time, so my choices are somewhat inconsequential. That's simply not true. We can 
shorten our trip from earth to heaven and leave behind a tattered legacy of broken relationships because although we were trusting in the grace of God, we refused to grow up and make the hard choices. Thank you. Although I'm rest assured, I am saying this looking at my picture on the monitor in the back. This is to Artie as well. And that's why I feel so strongly about it. I don't want to, I want to, I don't want to just hang on to affirming the gospel so if I get hit by the bus, I'll go to heaven. But I don't live a legacy of love and steadfastness and security for the people that I'm called to serve. So it requires adequately embracing the truth. I am responsible for working out my salvation primarily in the context of my relationships. But the only reason why I can have the arrogance to say I am confident that I can work out my salvation is because I'm standing on the truth that it flows from the fact that God is the one who is at work within me. So it doesn't come from my strength. So this verse is so powerful in the truth it communicates. And as we said last week, God is actively doing the willing and the working. We are called, the way we participate is we learn to yield, we learn to surrender, and we learn to participate in what God is doing. And we have to remember that contemporary, there's this theme of individualism and raising yourself up from your bootstraps that was passed on it's in our collective consciousness as americans you know the myth of the west and the cowboy that could do it all and i get it i understand i get pulled into it every once in a while when the next episode of yellowstone comes out you know i go find my boots and my car hearts and i walk around stoic and grunting a lot projecting my best rip impression but <clears throat> We have to recognize that, that we are all inundated with this idea that the key to life is building yourself up and leaving a name for yourself because of your successes and accomplishments that most people will forget about within 10 to 20 years after you're gone. And it bleeds into our discipleship and our spirituality because we think spirituality is just another key for self-improvement. And so we actually pursue self-spirituality as an attempt to control the outcome of our life. But the problem is this, Jesus' spirituality is utterly opposed to that posture. Jesus' spirituality is not about controlling my life, but yielding. It is a spirituality of surrender, not a spirituality of success. And I know that we like to write the books and do the videos and have the guest speakers that talk about how Jesus made their life easier and happier. But the testimony of our Lord is in the most important moments of life in such agony and prayer that the capillaries in his forehead are breaking and blood's coming out of his forehead as he wrestles with the true heart of Jesus-centered spirituality, which is coming to the point where we say, I don't want this. If there's any way that this could pass from me, that's what I desire. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And I surrender and I yield that's Jesus it's not control it's to move us to the point of letting go 
and yielding and surrender. That is our part. That is the way we work out our salvation. The outworking of our salvation is a dance. It's a partnership, as we talked about last week. Now, again, I'm not saying it's an equal partnership, but it is a partnership nonetheless. You've got to choose who you're going to trust in the process, yourself, your ideology, your church, your theology, your religious culture, some external authority figure, or are you going to learn to trust the life of Christ indwelling within you? And there's a problem here, particularly because we're not well educated on what it means that the, that the old covenant was fulfilled and now the new covenant has come. So we continue to live as though the new covenant, old covenant is still in fact in place, but in fact we're living in the new covenant. And one of the detrimental ways of doing that, we quote, quote old covenant scriptures like the heart is desperately wicked. He can trust it. I'll tell you he can trust it. Anyone redeemed by Jesus Christ living in the new covenant, living the promise that he gave you a new heart, you better trust it because that's where the voice of the Spirit is found. You've got to learn to yield to that internal authority and actually believe. No, my friends, the glory of the new covenant is this, the reversal of the wickedness of the heart. Your heart is not desperately wicked. It is the place of the indwelling Christ. He has given you a new heart, taken your heart of stone, given you a heart of flesh. So every morning, every moment, we have to make the choice for Christ because there is nothing that the, that the presence of Christ cannot and has not already overcome. Now, let's see if there are other places in Scripture that echo this idea, and that's what I want to do this morning. Three passages that I want to take some moment for us to think about and meditate upon. It's important for all of us, really, who participate in this model that we've been given, but very important for guys who pre pre uh, presume to do something like I'm doing here. I have to remember that the strength of these sermons are not in my witty observations. They are in the power of the truth of Scripture. Scripture ought to be privileged in Christian sermons way more than it's become the habit of us doing it. We typically use Christians to give, I mean, use Scripture to give topical talks rather than letting the force of the text to direct our thoughts and our thinking. So I want to take a moment and just privilege another few paragraphs in Scripture to see how this idea is woven together through many voices in the New Testament. Let's start with the voice of Jesus. John 15, 4 and 5. Jesus gives a metaphor for what a Jesus-centered spiritual life is intended to look like. And these are the words that he uses. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. For a branch cannot produce fruit if it is severed from the vine. I am happy for us to sit and talk about all the various theological perspectives and the ways we can interpret that verse. But at the end of the day, we have to understand that it is not our sinner's prayer at False Creek. It is not our church attendance. The question is, on an existential level, do you live life contemporary with Jesus, regardless of what your theology is? Because if you are disconnected from the life of the living Christ, you cannot bear fruit. And it doesn't matter how clever our systems or our theology may be, it's no replacement for yielding relationally into the presence of Christ. And this is what he says. 
The strength of your life is not in having your right beliefs. It's not in having correct theology. It is not going to the best church. Although these are variables that are important, they are not the primary thing. The strength of your success is the power of that vine that holds you to itself. And it comes from yielding and remaining, abiding in Christ. So he says, apart from the vine, uh, if you're severed from the vine, you can't be fruitful unless you remain in me. Verse five, yes, I am the vine. You are the branches. Those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Does it matter that I have a Bible degree, a seminary degree, and I read theology? If I'm not intimately walking with Christ, I can do nothing of value for Jesus, even if it's done in the name of my sophisticated understanding of the organized Christian religion. That is not necessarily equal to living in relationship with Jesus. And that is the way we bear fruitful lives. It comes out of the strength of our friendship with Jesus. Now, does he use our knowledge and our study? Absolutely, I believe in those things. But the strength of our life comes whether or not we remain, or as the old school translations said, the better word, abide. Do we abide with Christ? Galatians 2.20, it's another way of articulating the same basic idea. Paul says, this is the way he sums up Jesus-centered spirituality. He says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The goal is not the success of my accomplishments and the fame of my name. The goal is learning to die walking in the bliss of that place where it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The life that I now live in the body, I live sustained by my faith in the Son of God. This is the goal that the Holy Spirit's working toward. And he will use blessings and joy in my life to get me there. He will also use sin, failure, and regret to get me there. All of these elements are useful in the wise hands of God to take us where we need to go, which is the bliss of recognizing, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me, and the life that I now live, I live sustained by my faith in the Son of God. Let's keep going even a little bit deeper, and this, this passage blows my mind in so many ways. First, uh, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 4. By his divine power, God has given us everything we need for a godly life. Please repeat after me, class, everything we need. The battle of faith comes down to whether or not you have the guts to believe that or not. And most of us do not. In fact, we sell success Christian books by convincing you that you don't have everything you need. Because you don't have everything you need, buy my book. Because my book will add 
what is lacking in your ability to live a godly life. Because you don't quite have everything you need, come to my seminar. Because I can add to you what is lacking that you don't have. I've got the information for you. Because you don't have anything you need, I have a special anointing that if I put my hands on you in prayer, then that lack will be filled by the power of my anointed prayer. Now again, it's already saying we should never read books, we should never go get prayer. I am not saying that. Absolutely not. Um, and, but we have to be thoughtful about this because here's the thing. If you are searching for something you already have by being convinced that you don't have it, you will never find it because you'll go looking for it in all the wrong places when it was right here all along. And if you don't learn to go inward to the presence of the indwelling Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit that has already equipped you with everything you need, you will chase after the next big thing that promises your success. And you'll just spend, an, you can spend an entire Christian life in Christian Disneyland just going living by conference to conference to conference. And it's exhausting. And it gets a little embarrassing after a while, to be honest, because I've done it. The first thing you have to be convinced of is that you believe this is true. You like nothing. Because the one through whom all of existence was created is chosen to make his home in you. And now you have everything you need, not as a metaphorical theological concept, but as a rock solid existential spiritual reality that cannot be taken away from you. So he says, God has given us everything we need for a godly life. We have received all of this by coming to know him. So there it is again, the key to remaining, the key to abiding, the key to walking out the revelation you have everything you need is grounded in your intimate friendship with Jesus. It's grounded in the extent your life is rearranged around prioritizing knowing him. The one who called us to himself by means of his marvelous glory and excellence. And because of his glory and excellence, he has given us great and precious promises. These are the promises that enable you to share his divine nature and escape the world's corruption caused by human desires. Did you see that? You share in the divine nature of God. And if you could ever evaluate your own identity or self-concept as one who shares partakes in the divine nature of God rather than as one who is alienated, disconnected, and striving to get to that place where you can look like God, which is what religion will promise you. To, but that is a hamster wheel of exhaustion. If instead, stop working, stop striving, and go on a ravenous pursuit of the revelation of the indwelling Christ, you would do so much better. If you could wake up knowing you are already equipped with everything you need and you are a spiritual being that participates in the divine nature of God and you've been given a body through which you can express that reality, then you understand that what's most real isn't all these attachments to earth. 
There's a deeper part of me that no one sees that is the more real me. But honestly, it's even difficult for myself to live from that without the constant arrangement of my life in a rhythm that keeps me in a place of awareness so that I can seek to remain in him, to continue to abide in him because the dude abides. Sorry. Most of you aren't Lebowski fans, and so that fell flat. Um, But, so let's talk about just for a few minutes as we close, how this gets fleshed out. How did this work? How does this work on a practical level? Well, in this, I'm not presuming that I am the expert. I am not the doctor of your soul here to perform surgery so that you can go away fixed. All I can do as a fellow member of this community is bear witness. Bear witness to realities that have been born out in my own life. And in this pursuit, there are two challenges that hinder the spiritual life. And there are two simple ways of overcoming them. Number one, what are the two challenges? The the challenges are unbelief and pride. These are the double barrel of resistance that is going to flood our hearts and souls as we attempt to be faithful to becoming formed into Christ. Unbelief and pride. Now, when I say unbelief, I'm not talking about Well, if you had more faith, you would have been successful. I'm not even talking about if you genuinely admit on a rational level, there are some doctrines passed down by organized Christianity that I can affirm their truthfulness because I can honor the history of the development of our community, but at the same time to say, but there's a part of my brain that's not sure I believe that because it's just so hard for me to wrap my head around it. You don't have to condemn yourself over those things. In fact, it's the sign of Jesus to be able to believe to, I mean, sign of genius, maybe Jesus, uh, uh, genius to be able to hold on to two contradictory ideas at the same time without spitting one out. So it's okay to say, I believe in the virgin birth and to have moments say, I just don't know if I really rationally think that could happen. It's okay. Work that out. Walk that out. That's not the kind of unbelief I'm talking about. I'm talking about the unbelief that says you don't have everything you need for a godly life. I'm talking about the unbelief that tempts you to believe because of your history or even what you've done yesterday or even what you've done this morning or even what you've thought about doing, you are therefore no longer a partaker of the divine nature. That is a lie. There, There is processing. There is work. There's a work of maturity. But the fact of the matter is, we're sunk if we can't trust what God has said about us and what he said he's willing to be for us. It's the unbelief that says, no, I'm not part of the divine nature. If you really knew me, you would see the proof. And I would say, I don't need to see the proof. I understand that proof because I live with it with myself. What I'm trying to do is, despite that, to actually rest in the truth that God has chosen to make his home in an unworthy vessel. And that has invited me into this dance of the Trinity so that I become a partaker of the divine nature and I let that truth begin to define who I am so that it alters my thinking so that that thinking that's altered begins to alter my behavior. But we're so stuck on techniques for altering behavior so that we can all come in here and pretend we're more godly than we are. No, thank you. I, I won't do that again for the rest of my life. What I want to do is not live in pretense and image management. I want to live from a deep revelation that 
I am one who partakes in the divine nature and I have been given everything that I need to live a godly life. So unbelief and pride. Well, what's the strategy for overcoming unbelief and pride? I'm glad you asked. It's faith and humility. That's it. And here's what I would submit to you. This sermon would be, would feel better if I came up with strategies for how we fight pride and unbelief. This is what we like to do. Identify an enemy, gather around strategies for defeating the enemy. And we like to use the phrases like life is war. There's a battlefield in your mind. There's a war in your, there's a war in your soul. And we're steeped in war metaphor as the means for understanding the spirituality of Jesus. Got to do battle. Got to do spiritual warfare. Got to fight against that pride and unbelief. Now, I am bearing witness to what is speaking to me in this season of my life. If this is not where you are, and if that's meaningful to you, more power to you. That war metaphor was at one time very meaningful to me. In fact, I used to do my prayer in the mornings with my army fatigues on. That's how seriously I took it. I had let them out the light before, put a bucket of cold water by my bed, set my alarm an hour early, and, you know, participated in the rhythms of grace by hating my life, by slapping myself with that wash rag, becoming alert, put on my army fatigues and my army green t-shirt, and do battle with the devil an hour before I started my day. Now, is some of that humorous to me now? Yes, it is. But do I believe that God was kind enough in my immaturity to use that to move me to the next season of my life? Yeah, he was. I don't despise those days. I may laugh at them a little bit, but I don't despise them and I don't wish them away. I'm grateful that I had them. But what I am learning is that what if, just as an experiment, we took a break from the war metaphor and we didn't think of our soul as a battleground, but instead we thought of our soul as a garden. And that what we are called to do is not get up and put on our army fatigues, but we get up and put on our dirty hippie pants and we go put our hands in the dirt and we cultivate and we water and we weed and we, we put nutrients in the soil and we watch with joy as fruit blossoms from the garden of our soul and then we pick it and we are nourished by it. And then maybe we can it and other people are nourished by it as well. What if you saw your soul as a garden rather than a battlefield? So instead of fighting unbelief and pride, you just simply spent time cultivating humility and faith. Is it possible that with that preoccupation, the humility and faith would quietly open the door and excuse your pride and unbelief. I think it is possible. I think it's worth considering that maybe we should start gardening our souls and focusing on the virtue that we're cultivating rather than the vices that we're battling. Unbelief, let's start with there, it is overcome by the cultivation of faith. But it's a faith that reminds you that the goodness of God is at work even in the harshness of your, of your darkest seasons of life.
it is, it is recognizing that you can see God at work not just in the happy moments of success and not just in those joyful moments at a, maybe a, a worship gathering, but that God is present and he's at work in your longing. When's the last time you paid attention to your longing? Or out of a pseudo-spirituality, have you just said, oh, that's selfishness, I'm going to ignore that? Because parts of organized Christianity would tell you to do that. But what if... What if you've been given a new heart that you're supposed to pay attention to? And what if those longings are windows into your soul, not self-centered distractions? You ever sat with your longing, your unfulfilled longing, and entertained the possibility the Spirit is speaking to you in that longing? He is present in your regret. It is shameful to me that we say, just live a life with no regrets. Your regrets are an incredible invitation of participating in the redemptive arc of your story. But you gotta first and feel, you gotta first sit with them and feel their crushing weight. And in that place, you ask the Holy Spirit to take that burden from you, or at least provide you the strength to endure it, and then he begins to do so. And now, your regret is just the preface of your story. It is the stuff that empowers you to understand the life you actually want to live. And so you allow that regret to bring its wisdom. It's a gift. It's not your enemy. It doesn't have to high center you in condemnation and shame. You can allow its lessons to enter into your soul and say, I'm ready, Lord. I'm ready to understand how the choices and the steps I took to get to that place of regret so that you can empower me with the wisdom to move in a direction that is more life-giving in the future. But you gotta learn their lessons to do that. He's at work in your suffering. I'm not gonna belabor this point because Adam gave a great sermon on that a few weeks ago and immediately I began to increase the suffering in my life. I told Adam he can't do that again. Next time he has to give a happy sermon about you know, wealth and prosperity and all those kinds of things. No, I'm really grateful for it because although I didn't know what I was going to enter into, the Holy Spirit did. And I was equipped in a way that I would not have been had I not heard those words that morning. God is at work in your suffering. We might be more quickly to short circuit the season of suffering than is the wisdom of the Holy Spirit because he's the one that is at work in it. And so, do we take time in our suffering to step back and say, Holy Spirit, I'm hurting so much and I am so bitter and I am bound by negative narratives in my head. I can't get at it on my own. Would you kindly intervene? Would you open my eyes and allow me to see the beauty that is blossoming in the midst of this darkness? Because I can't see it on my own. And here's the beauty of life in the Spirit. He responds to those kinds of prayers. He will do exactly that. Faith can be cultivated when we understand that God has worked in all of our emotional frustrations. They're saying something to you. I can't tell you what it is, but they're saying something. And it's silly to say, oh, I don't want to think about me. I'm just going to ignore those negative feelings. No, pull those things out. 
Invite them to your time before the Lord. That's where they belong. Make them a cup of tea. Fellas, anxieties, sufferings, bitterness, regrets. Let's all have tea before the Lord and see what we can figure out together. Let's hold some counsel together. And then you sit before the presence of the Lord and you start to listen. And you go, well, first of all, guys, I owe you an apology. I've been resisting you and fighting you for years. I did not know that you were here as my friends. I didn't realize you came bearing gifts. And so I have fought to bar the door and not let you in. And I'm not going to do that anymore. Come on in. Let's sit down. Let's have tea. I want to hear what you have to say. And then God begins to reveal how he has been at work all along. And those things were trying to tell us something. But do we have the courage to stop and sit with them and listen to what they have to say in the presence of the Holy Spirit? But that's not all the place he's working. Holy Spirit is also at work in your joy and in your bliss. But too often times, the joy and the bliss is found in moments that we don't celebrate because it mainly comes to us in mundane moments of life. And so we don't stop and enter into the gifts that they really are. When was the last time your heart really sang You know, we have to understand there's a difference between the discipline it takes to make our mouths sing and the experience of our hearts singing, which we can't control. When was the last time your heart sang? What was going on? Well, I'm a little embarrassed because it really wasn't religious. Good. It's time for us to learn that God is at work outside of the boundaries of religion. He's at work in that afternoon that spontaneously happened because your child had to be picked up early from school and you went and got an ice cream cone and went for a walk. God's there. Sometimes he's there more than he is when you're in the midst of a service raising your hands and singing songs. Where's your joy? Where's your bliss? And are you willing to honor it by asking the further question of what God might be revealing about what your heart needs? in these moments of joy and bliss. Pride, of course, is simply overcome by cultivating humility. And one of the key lessons of humility is to embrace the fact that God is at work in your failure. And this is hard, especially as a parent, to really live by this because you want to protect your kids from failure. We all, Christian parents, want to protect their children from everything that God used to bring you to Christ. It's a very odd paradox. But what we should be doing is equipping our children with the vision of God that will be meaningful when they one day fail, because they're going to. When they wonder, have we equipped them with the vision of God that lets them know that although religion is, I've messed up, I need to hide from dad, Jesus-centered spirituality is, I've messed up, i got to call dad immediately. That's what we're wanting to cultivate in their hearts is the vision of God. The bliss of the spiritual life comes in part by being aware of all the ways that the spirit of life is at work in your heart. It is our awareness. Everyone say awareness. It is our awareness of the life of Christ within that empowers us to remain abiding in him. What's the reality that you're most aware of? I've been really fascinated by this because I'm in a season where I'm being revisited by struggles and demons that I thought had long packed their bags and left. 
And it's different now because I have a different set of maturity. I have a different set of accountability, really, than I had before when I wrestled with those things. And I wonder about that. I ponder this. And I've realized I'm most aware of narratives of anger, regret, bitterness, and self-condemnation. If I don't purposefully work to put myself in a different place, my mind gets dominated with the awareness of those narratives. And look, I'm not gonna pretend like it's all false. There's some real truth there. There's real pain, there's real hurt, there's real heartache. But it doesn't have to become the dominative narrative unless that's what I choose to do. And so I am just, Lord, help me be aware of the larger narrative of redemption. Make me aware of the narrative that Christ is in me dwelling, empowering me, and you're working in me both to will and to work according to your good pleasure. That's the narrative that I want dominating the soundtrack of my life. But my friends, we have to recognize you can't escape the fact you've got a sound, a narrative soundtrack that is that is dominating and narrating your life for you. You've got to be aware of what it is. And if it's not healthy, if it's toxic, if it's not helpful, seek the Spirit to become aware of the redemptive narrative that God is weaving into your life. And he'll do that. And there is a difference in 24-hour periods that's spent rehearsing your narrative of redemption rather than your narrative of bitterness. But the key is in that awareness. We move from I can to he can, therefore I can. So as we respond, I want you to think about these four ways of being. And I want you to find where you are in this progression. Number one, there's the I, not Christ. This is everyone who's yet to experience the revelation of Jesus. Maybe old school religious talk would call them unbelievers. I don't like that because it, it insinuates that once you come to faith, you're no longer an unbeliever. And that, folks, just wasn't true of my experience. I remained an unbeliever for years in the faith. But haven't really got to that point of revelation of Christ. I, not Christ. Then there is the I and Christ way of being. And pejoratively, in my more uh, aggressive spiritual circles, we would call these fire insurance Christians. It's the, it's the I in Christ, it's where I'm tacking on some verbal acknowledgement of Christ because that's how I, told, I was told I could guarantee that I will not go burn when I get hit by the proverbial bus. But if you've lived there, you know that's a joke. That kind of faith does not empower you to live a life of self-sacrifice for others. It just buttresses your own self-centeredness because now the call to die has been called to this weird kind of, no, you don't, rather than die, you can just live forever in Club Med in the sky. And, and it doesn't empower you to really walk with Christ. And I'm fine, that may be the way most of us get in the door. It certainly was the way I got in the door. A, a sweaty evangelist. Look, little seven-year-old Artie in the eye. Said, your parents will be in heaven forever. Do you want to be with your parents in heaven forever? Or would you rather be in hell forever where your flesh will burn off? And this is what I was told, only to be rejuvenated so it could be burnt off again forever and ever. Well, I'm not saying I was the brightest, the sharpest tool in the shed, 
The seven-year-old already said, I'll choose door number one. Go with mom and dad forever and ever. But was there any experience of Christ? No. Was there an awareness of my need to yield to and lean on the present power of the Holy Spirit in order to live a godly life? No. There's no power there. So then we move to the next place. That is, is progression, but it's also the most miserable. And that is the Christ and I. So I've reversed the order. I get that Christ should be the priority. And now, because of all he has done for me, I am going to spend my life doing so much for him. It's not relationship. It's transactional. It's reciprocal. God did this. Now he expects you to do that. And it's miserable. Because I am, that's the life where I'm trying and striving to look like Jesus. I am trying to be a good Christian. This is the most miserable because this is the Christians that tend to keep their idols. They have a religious savior, which is Jesus, whom they really love and they want to honor. But on the day to day, they have practical saviors and they are not Jesus. They are tips, strategies, and personality strengths that we've learned to accumulate in order to survive the difficulties of this world. And there was a time when we needed to cultivate those things, but there's a time when we have to recognize God may have used that for a season, but these things are not my savior. These are not my idols. I don't have to have a happy marriage in order to be faithful to Jesus. I don't have to control all of these externals, but I, I get preoccupied with that. This is when we tend to keep our idols. We tend to allow religious obedience to replace intimate relationship. And if this phase can be summed up in one sentence, it's this, we seek to imitate the life of Christ. But thanks be to God, he allows that to exhaust us and to disappoint us. Some of us walk away from the faith because of it for many years because we weren't equipped with the fact that that was always coming down the pike. Or we recognize, I don't want to be a religious person in my own strength anymore. I want a supernatural experience of being carried and sustained by the power of the Holy Spirit through the presence of the indwelling Christ. And so then we move from being Christ and I to Christ, not I. Galatians 2.20. We live in that revelation. I, I no longer live. I've died with Christ. The life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is where we go from seeking to imitate the life of Christ to where we learn to participate in the life of Christ. The life that's already there the life that says you already have everything that you need for life and godliness. You just have to learn to change your paradigm and perspective and to live a rhythm of grace that allows you to remain aware of that reality, aware of the indwelling Christ, aware of, of your participation in the divine nature. So my question is, which of these lives are you currently living? What are the idols that hinder you from living from Christ in you, the hope of glory? What are the things that still you're trying to make your life strong and successful without having to be broken and yielding to the presence of Jesus? Can you identify them? Maybe not, but the Holy Spirit can if you'll carve out some space. What are the bad idols that you use? You know, those are the easy ones, right? 
drink too much, smoke too much, whatever. Then there are the good ones. I'm going to give good sermons. And if people affirm me, then I'll know I'm doing well. And now, Jesus, you can take a break because I've made this congregation my savior. I'll let them be the ones to sustain my worth and self-concept. That's a pretty good idol because it looks really godly. I promise there are idols that are bad and negative and easy to identify, but there are functional saviors in our life that don't look evil. And I'm not saying we have to get rid of them, but I am saying we have to put them in the proper place and perspective. So which are they? Can you identify them? As the worship team comes forward, I want to create just some space here for you to respond to the Holy Spirit in that. Tips for your journey. If you don't know where to begin, you could begin with reading Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Taking time to really let that kingdom manifesto begin to define your faith and your own self-concept. We've introduced the idea of breath prayer. And for those of you who have responded with your testimonies, thank you. That may have been a simple text or conversation to you, but it meant the world to me. And it's encouraging to see how the Holy Spirit is at work. And so I want to introduce another breath prayer to you. Take five or ten minutes with just this breath prayer. Christ, not I. Christ, not I. And let that revelation sink down into the deeper parts of your brain so it begins to direct your thinking and behaving. Would you all stand with me, please? Heavenly Father, we are so grateful to you that in all the things that you could have given us to help us live a godly life, you just chose to just give it, go ahead and give us yourself. And so I pray that you would empower us to learn how to live from that rock solid reality that you have given yourself to us. You have made us your dwelling place. You've given us everything that we need for a life of godliness. And you've invited us and grafted us in so that we now share in your divine nature. Let us embrace it so that we can then turn and walk the earth as the mercy of God. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.